Hello, everyone. Santir here. And Redcoat here as well. Thought I'd change things up on you a little bit. Today, we're going to talk about the exciting topic of world size versus world density. Uh, not necessarily versus in a combative sense, but just kind of in a conceptual sense. Uh, to make sure that you understand the two and are not confused by them. Indeed. Um, when it comes to world creation, one of the common traps is that you go to make the world and you're like, I want something vast. I want the player to find a lot of interest in this world. Or rather, you feel like you want the player to have a lot of interest in the world, so you're like, well, let's make it big. That means they can find more stuff in it because there's more space. But more space doesn't mean more stuff. It just means more ground. Right. What we're trying to drive at here is this concept that a world that's bigger doesn't necessarily have more interest in it. Yeah. In other words, bigger isn't always better. Uh, a bit of a caveat before we get too deep into this topic, it doesn't really apply to more linear games. Uh, your typical linear platformer where you go from one end to the other doesn't really suffer from this issue. We're more talking about open world or explorative games, games that have a focus on exploration, such as your Legend of Zelda, your Mario 64, your Assassin's Creed, your Skyrim, your Dark Souls, uh, your Kingdoms of Amalur. I yeah. think that's a, a sufficient list for the time being. Your Metroids. Yeah, and one thing that is important to note about this is that concept that um, the reason why linear games tend not to have this issue as much is because of that structure. Generally speaking, you're not thinking about, well, I need people to find more stuff in here. You, you're, yeah. you're thinking more along the lines of, what's the next event? What's the next thing that the player encounters? And so you're always in that idea of, okay, what's interesting about this specific thing? Yeah, part of the thing that you have with those is it's a more intentional process because you're directing the entire flow from one end to the other. And in more open experiences, you have significantly less control over the flow of player movement. Indeed. So our first example that we'd like to pick up is uh, in the Legend of Zelda series. Yeah. And uh, it's specifically Majora's Mask and Twilight Princess. Yep. Now, for those of you that have played the games, I want you to, to think in your mind what you remember from playing those games. Yeah. And, and specifically, when you think about the world and that sort of thing, what sort of things you think about? And um, in particular, I want to draw you to Termina Field and Hyrule Field. Yeah. It's that sort of area between dungeons and forests and stuff that you kind of move through, right? For those who don't know that it's called Termina Field, that's the area around Clock Town. And then uh, in Twilight Princess, Hyrule Field kind of is around the Castletown Marketplace area. Now, in my memory, when I remember Termina Field, I never really remember spending too much time in there. No. Mostly I remember that really annoying crow in yeah. the entrance to the kind of the uh, forest area mm -hmm. uh, that likes to steal your stuff. And I remember the bubbles that you can snipe with light arrows to get piles of cash. Yeah. And one of the things I remember is, like, whenever I looked up at the horizon, I could see just a bunch of stuff. Like, yep. I could see the, the cold mountains where you would do the Goron thing. Mm -hmm. I could see off in the distance the beach where we'd end up doing the stuff with the Zoras, the forest. There was a lot there for me to see. Yeah, and there there is a lot that's also kind of immediate, right? You don't travel that far to get into the Goron area. Yeah. And those areas are almost kind of encroaching on Tremina Field. Yeah. Like, it transitions to them 
before you even fully leave the zone. Exactly. And so there's a there's an intrinsic interest there. Mm-hmm. And now we contrast that to Twilight Princess's field, which what I remember most of it is green, just flat green. And a kind few of things orangey here and there. skies for some reason in my memory. Yeah. Um and a lot of it. Yeah. Like there was two to five zones of field it felt like. Uh might have been more like th- two to three, but yeah, and I remember it taking a little while to get from point A to point B in there. And other than, like, I think there was, like, a, a bridge in the middle that there was, a, like, a little puzzle for. Yeah, and... that was the Bridge of Elden. I think you had to go find a piece and have Midna teleport it back or something. Yeah. Other than a few bits and pieces here and there, I felt that it felt really empty to me. Yeah. It didn't feel like there was any more happening, per se, than in, say, Termina Field. Mm-hmm. It just took you a lot longer to find those pieces of happening. Yeah. And this is a point, is that concept of why would you make that decision to make it so big and so open um, when there's not really that much there? Well, there's a couple of reasons why you might consider doing that. The first is this idea that this is a new generation. We can do things bigger and broader and better than we could before. Part of what was happening psychologically with Twilight Princess also was they were trying to recapture the feeling that people had about Ocarina of Time because of some of the negative reception that Wind Waker had had. True, because Ocarina of Time had a similar field, actually. Yeah, it did. And they were basically trying to make Ocarina of Time but bigger. Mm -hmm. But that didn't necessarily make it better. Yeah, and that's a key point, because they actually technically made a similar mistake to what they made in Wind Waker, even though they were trying to avoid it, mm. um, which was uh, in the original Wind Waker, not the remake, because they fixed this particular issue yeah. in the remake. But in the original, it took a really long time to get to any of the points of interest on the world map. Yeah, it was a neat design, but lots of sailing, an interesting game does not necessarily make. Yeah, and... It meant that anytime you wanted to go somewhere, you picked a direction and then you had to wait and watch the sea kind of swell and move as you yeah. got there. It's pretty, yeah. in my opinion, but... It was. It was very pretty. And also pretty boring. Now, we will say that there was a technical reason for it to be that way. Yeah, they couldn't have you moving too fast or it kind of break aspects of the game. Yeah, because it was um, you traveling across the world was um, that slowly was their way of hiding loading. Yeah, uh, and they're able to, again, why this isn't applied to the HD re-release, because they added a sail that makes you go super fast and automatically changes the wind and it's awesome. But that sort of problem of a big world with not much in it when you look at the overall surface area is the exact same sort of problem that came up again in Twilight Princess. Yeah, and that is the core issue of the world itself is big, but it is not dense. Yeah, and part of the thing that leads to this is your designers can only make so much. So if they're spending more of their time making geometry, like world geometry, they're spending less time making that world geometry have stuff in it that the player actually interacts with in a way that's beyond, this makes a pretty screenshot. So I wanted to hit uh, one of the early examples of a game that is fairly dense in its world design. Mm-hmm. And that is Super Mario 64. We come back to that game a lot, and there's there are a lot of reasons for that. One of the big ones is that nothing has quite done the same thing in quite the same way since. 
There are a few games that tried to emulate it in the N64 era, but only a few of them really caught the same concepts of what Super Mario 64 really did and its first outing. So one of the big things about Mario 64, when we're looking at the history of that game, like it's, mm-hmm. it's coming from a obstacle course style game. It's coming from Mario, Super Mario Brothers 3. I think the last one before that came out was, I think it was Yoshi's Island. I think there was something else after that in the Mario series. Would have been like a world or something? Yeah. Well, I mean, there was Mario World at the start of the SNES era. And I know Yoshi's Island was one of the really memorable ones that came out uh, during that period. Anyway, the point being, A, I don't know games before the N64 because that's when I got a console, (laughs) and B, it came from the sort of obstacle course platformers. Yes, it came from that era. So Mario 64 wanted to retain some of that concept of, you know, the obstacle course. You're always doing something. You're acting yeah, But it wanted to go into the era of 3D because this mm-hmm. is what the polygons of the N64 allowed us to do. Yeah, and you can see some of the similarities, right, to uh, like the Mario world where you have kind of an overworld and you go into the individual stages. And the stages themselves are the primary obstacle course. And the thing that's really impressive about Super Mario 64 is you basically pick two locations on the map and getting from one to the other is some amount of an obstacle course. Yeah, and this is what makes the design of the worlds in that game very dense. Wherever you go, wherever you look, whatever you're doing, you are interacting with that level non-trivially. Yeah, and there's actually something else that those games do really, really well with each level, is each level is kind of built around a centerpiece, right? You have the field, the the bomb bomb battlefield, right? And it's built around that sort of... uh, towery thingy that the King Bomb-omb is on. Yeah. That you have to, like, climb up. Like, there's a lot of things that you climb up that they're built around, but you have, say, the Clock Tower, which is built around the sort of level that doesn't have a center so much. Yeah. And you've got all of these different sorts of things that these levels are built around that gives them each a very unique focus. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's a really key aspect of helping your level design to really stand out, your world design, when navigating is these sorts of points of focus or these landmarks. Yeah. And landmarky design, um, as we'll call it, is a very key thing. And one of the things that allows you to know if you're doing it right is when your player goes through that level and does a this or does a that, they remember how to get there and they don't actually need a map to do it. Yeah. Another way of thinking of it is if you handed the player a map without any indicators of where they are on it, could they locate themselves? Yeah. So say Grand Theft Auto. If I were handed a map of the world in Grand Theft Auto, save for a few specific locations, I wouldn't really be able to find where I myself am in that world. Yeah, it's just a lot of the individual areas are just not going to be distinct enough. I'd have similar problems with uh, the Saints Row. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, where it's like, well, I recognize this particular spot and I know where I'm going, but I don't know where I am necessarily. And I mean, even certain some open world games where they're built in such a way where you'd think that it would be a little bit more landmarky uh the concept that comes to mind is infamous second son uh the game is based off of seattle and there are landmarks in seattle like the space needle or pike's place marketplace with the ferris wheel i think yeah those elements if you're at those spaces 
yes, you'll know where you're at. Yeah, but if you're not, can you find where those things are? Do you have line of sight? Do you have to go like do extensive hunting to be able to figure out where you're at based upon landmarks that you can't see half the time? And that's an important thing. While I'm on the topic, there is one open world game in particular that I know of that did this really well, um, which is the most recent Witcher. Mm, Witcher 3? Yeah, Hunt. that game, the way they even generated the world was actually quite, um, quite a feat in of itself. Because you had this idea where normally in these games you end up having to make every set piece. And what that means is you make each set piece, but if you have a world that spans digital miles... Yeah, that's extremely labor-intensive. And what that results in is cut and paste. Yeah, uh, like, I certainly can. And um, what they did in The Witcher was they actually let the world procedurally generate itself. And what's crazy is that they actually followed kind of ge geographic methods of that where they go, okay, here's a river. We're just going to let it trickle and it's going to create the landscape. Sure. And you kind of run a, um, an erosion process and then kind of seed stuff based upon, uh, generated factors for, uh, precipitation and like fertility of the land and that sort of thing, I bet. Yeah. Now, I don't know all the details of what went into it, but I do know that that's a part of the development process for that. And if you just look at a lot of the stuff that they do in that game, there is a ton of attention to detail. So there was still a lot of, um, a lot of focus work. Yeah, I could see especially like doing that sort of thing to create your initial map and then saying, okay, now that we've done this, we export the, the maps that we have as kind of a base and we build off of that and put in things like here's where this town is based upon what the world got generated as. And I could see that sort of thing leading to a very interesting sort of world design. Most definitely. But thinking about landmarkiness, another example of this, and specifically that concept of uh, when you're given a map of the world, can you find yourself without actually having an indicator on it? Mm -hmm. um, and how quickly. is? And we hit this one a lot too, but that's because it's a modern classic, the Dark Souls series. Yeah. There's not a whole lot that necessarily needs to be said, but when you're in, in a given area, it, there's not necessarily another area quite like it. And... When you're in a given spot in that area, uh, there's stuff that you can use to orient yourself. Uh, let's say in Dark Souls 1, you're in Anor Orlando. You can't mistake that for anywhere else. You just can't. And every part of that has its own feel. The inside of the um, old keep, Gwyn's old keep, right? Where uh, there's the hall that the two sentinels are in and the big door that leads to the outside. Like every every area you can describe with like one to two sentences to yeah. to explain where it is, right? Uh, in an Orlando with the painting of the painted world, mm -hmm. you know where that is if you're familiar with that game. Yeah. And as like, you're in the rafters. Great. Yeah. Fun. Try to trick the enemies to fall down. But that's exactly the sort of thing that we're talking about where at some point the players can develop a sense of where they're at. And if they can't do that, that's either a serious problem or an intentional design, like a roguelike sort of thing. Yeah. And for most games, you're going to want the players to be able to say, oh, I'm here. And the longer it takes for them to kind of figure that out or the more they have to rely on maps or looking stuff up, 
the less they're kind of connected with your world in many ways, the more they're playing by their mini maps or that sort of thing. Yeah. And it's a really important thing. I feel that if your game is, if specifically one of the core elements of your game is exploration, then you really want your player to be able to find things and discover things. And if most of the parts of your world don't really look different from each other, um, it doesn't feel as like you're discovering things or the discoveries are too few and far between. Yeah, but this is only one aspect, right? You mm-hmm. can still have a world where you can identify where things are at and what's going on and where you are on the world and it just takes too long to get anywhere of any interest. Mm-hmm. Um, what particularly comes to my mind at this moment are to some extent MMOs, but even more severely like Xenoblade Chronicles. Yeah. Uh, a game that I've seen gameplay footage of and it's just like, this is impressively huge. Also takes forever to get from one end to the other. Tales of Zestiria, which I uh, streamed recently, small plug, also has this where it's like, yeah, each area is relatively distinct, but man, does it take forever to cross them. Yeah. And that's the question is, are you putting that distance in just to pad the hours that it takes to play your game or, or to try to give a sense of scale that loses interest in the process? And whenever you put distance in, you have to ask that question. What am I using this for? Is this interesting? Yeah. And when players see a screenshot and they're like, ooh, I can't wait to explore that. And then they find that there's not much there. That can be kind of disappointing. Indeed. And it's hard to put a lot there when you make a world really, really big. Mm-hmm. That's an important part on scope and scale. Yeah. Uh, again, we're not saying that big is bad, but that big isn't necessarily good. Yeah. Right. And it's about figuring out what your density level can be and what density level you're trying to achieve. Indeed. So I feel like we covered a lot of this. Yeah, I kind of think that more or less covers things. It's just make sure that you have stuff that kind of stands out that like if you think about real life, right? Yeah. Let's take Paris as an example, because there's lots of memorable things in Paris. Most definitely. So one of the things that that is really incredible about there is the Arc de Triomphe which I probably mispronounced horribly, Arc, the Arc of Triumph, where you have all these streets, if I'm remembering correctly, that converge on it. Yeah. So you have all these streets where you can look down and see it, and it gives you an orientation point, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's set up in such a way that you can orient yourself to this landmark, yeah. or where you can see where the Eiffel Tower is, or you can be walking along and like, okay, here's the Louvre, and then five minutes later, you're still walking next to it because it's friggin' huge. Or where you can be like, oh, here's the... I feel like it's sort of an island thing that Notre Dame is on. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you have these sorts of things that can serve as landmarks where people can get line of sight to them. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the big things, is being able to get line of sight to your landmarks. So that way people can be like, oh, there's that thing. Okay, given that that's over there, this is where I am, because I know where that is. Yeah. And real life works with that sort of thing. And then there's a lot of density in real life, and that can be difficult to, to duplicate in games. But figuring out what sort of density level you want and how to, to get that. And also, one final thing that popped in my head, your landmarks don't have to be big. Right. It can be something as simple as a very distinctive, unique bridge across a river yeah. or a little stream that is very memorable. Mm-hmm. And that's the bigger key is that memorability can also be an incredibly important part of that sort of landmark effect. Most definitely. That whenever you're making these worlds, you do want it to stick in your player's mind. I mean, it's a part of the experience. And uh, what makes something memorable is the interest, the interest involved. Yeah. So that'll be it for us then. Uh, next time, we are going to be talking about dun, 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 visceral and cerebral. So this is something that we've brought up a number of times, and we finally have a good chance to talk about this concept. We've changed 
some of our thinking about it a little bit uh, in our discussions in preparation for talking about it. Mm -hmm. So that should be hopefully enough to whet your appetite on it. So CNT here, signing off. And Redco, signing off. Play the games you want to play, boyos.